0: I'm glad you're here. There's a lot that I want to discuss today. Just, uh, really kind of jam in a lot of thoughts. And, um, basically, just to give you an overview, I want to look into this, um, this idea of, of, uh, in the, uh, in the Ten Commandments, God refers to himself as a jealous God. And this is always, um, sort of, Mystified me. What does this mean? A jealous God. Like, and I've never really had a chance to look into it. And so I did some research and, and, uh, I, I want to sort of like unpack that, that word and sort of get into the Hebrew of it and, and everything like that and explore what, what, what it really is, is talking about. Um, so that's one thing. And then also, um, just to maybe discuss a little bit, uh, about, proper mitos, just exploring this idea of jealousy a little bit more, and proper character traits, and to look at how, basically, this formula, which might sound surprising to you, but if you're nicer, you will be smarter. So I I will show you how that's true, that niceness actually will increase your intelligence, and and I'll, I'll I'll explain that and I'll give you a, an example of that in action, and um, and maybe if we have time, to talk about um, miracles um, as well, and and the, these all sort of um, overlap. All these ideas overlap, <clears throat> but I want to get into. Um, this idea of God describing himself as a jealous God. And if you're curious where that is, that's in um, uh, Shmos chapter 20, verse five. So the book of Exodus chapter 20, verse five, reads the following. Uh, and this is the second of the Ten Commandments. And it says, you shall not prostrate yourself. That means like bow down um, to them or worship them. For I am Hashem, your God, a jealous God. And the Hebrew of a jealous God is El. That's one of the names of God. Aleph Lamed. El Kana, which is translated as jealous. That's Kuf Nun Aleph. El Kana means a jealous God. OK, so. So the first thing that uh, just so we have some sort of context here is, I mentioned that this is the second of the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments is actually a, an English phrase, and we're going to get into the, the difficulty of translating. And as I've mentioned to you before, um, something, I think I heard it from my, my brother-in-law, uh, a, a very important concept for everyone to know who's working primarily in English, is that every translation is a commentary. And what I mean by that is that you're never reading the exact text in a translation. You're reading a commentary of the text in a translation. And just to explain that a little bit more, every Hebrew word can be translated as... and English words, by the way, too. But let's say in the Hebrew for a moment. That can be five different words, and each one has a different nuance. And if you pick one, because you have to pick one if you're going to publish a translation... You are investing your own bias, your own opinion on the text. And so, so, so the translation itself becomes your commentary on the, on the text just by virtue. Even if you want to be perfectly objective, if you have to pick one of five or one of ten every single time on key words, you can't encompass the entire meaning of something. So, so, so every translation is necessarily a commentary. Okay, so that's fine. So, so the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments, so let's just look at that phrase, the Ten Commandments. In Hebrew, it's actually the Aseros Hadibros, which means the Ten Statements, ten or Ten Things, or whatever it is, Ten Statements, Ten Sayings. Um, There's actually 14 commandments in the Ten Commandments. And furthermore, Our tradition is that all 613 commandments are contained within the Ten Commandments. And if you want to get deeper, within the first letter of the first word of the Ten Commandments, within the Aleph of Anochi, which is the first word of the Ten Commandments, all 613 are wrapped in. But anyway, um, so even the phrase Ten Commandments is misleading. But nonetheless, we'll use it just um, for, for conversational terms. So the first two of the Ten Commandments sound like the same commandment. And a lot of people don't fully appreciate how different they are. And, um, and let's just go through them. The first commandment is, I am God, your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Okay, so that's a statement. That first, that first one is a commandment to believe in God, according to the Rambam it's a statement of the existence of god and the commandment to believe in god okay now the second commandment is not to have any idols to have no other gods so so now you would most people would think and remember god is not repeating himself god never repeats himself every letter of every single word the crown of every letter of every single letter is unique and you can learn something from it and nothing is arbitrary so, the, uh, certainly the first two of the Ten Commandments are not going to be the same commandment. So, what's the difference between these two? Because most people would think, if I believe in God, then I don't believe in other gods. I believe in God. That's what most people would think. And you'll see, as we get more deeply into this, that that's, you're, a person is way off if they think that. And I certainly believe that myself. Um, until... I read something from Rabbi Nachman of Breslov who opened up an entire field, an orchard, just a galaxy of spiritual growth by pointing out the difference between the first commandment and the second commandment. And he pointed out very insightfully that one can believe in God, the creator of heaven and earth, right? The giver of the Torah, right? Who we understand to be Hashem. One can believe in God and believe in other powers. <laughs> and now you begin to go, oh, okay. <laughs> now i got to think about this. Now i got to think about this. So God is making utterly clear, utterly clear, it's me and no one else. It's me and no other power. And in fact, and right now I'm reading from a book, the, it's the Klein edition, it's called The Ten Commandments. Wonderful book, I, I recommend it. Very, very, uh, very thorough, and it goes it goes through quite a lot. Um, it's talking about the the second commandment here. Now listen to this. Just I'm reading one sentence. This is on page 72. The prohibition, this prohibition, meaning not to believe in other powers, is violated simply by believing that another god exists. So, if you forget about believing in that God, if you even believe that another God even exists, you're violating this commandment. So, so, as I've mentioned before, our position isn't we worship the strongest God and our God can beat your God. That's not Judaism. Judaism monotheism, further monotheism states... There is no other power. It's only God. There is no other power. Very, very important because, like I say, this is a gateway for tremendous spiritual growth because in our own lives, we 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 shackle ourselves with fear. And we're afraid to do so many things because we think that all these things around us have tremendous power. And we attribute power to all these other things when it's only God who has power. And we can rid ourselves of all sorts of ghosts and demons and fears and everything like that if we just understand that God controls everything. There's only God, and he controls everything. Okay. Now, God takes it a step further. And he says, he refers to himself in this second commandment when he's saying there are no other powers. God calls himself a jealous God. Now, El kana nun ala that's the word that's translated as jealous okay now if you look in other books they'll translate that same word as zealous and in fact i was going over this idea with someone and they 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 saw the word jealous and they said oh no that's a typo really it means zealous they didn't realize or zealous, you know, they didn't. They didn't realize that these are just different translations, which are different commentaries, right? So let's get into this word itself, "kana," the Hebrew of it, and figure out really what it's saying. Okay, so if you look it up in a dictionary, "jealous" is one of the translations of it. Zealous is one of the translations of it, and in a more modern Hebrew. And I think that this is interesting. I don't know um, if this is more of a current thing, but I'm just giving this over to you to give you the flavor of the word so that you can sort of like mix them all together in your mind. You ready for this? Obsessed. That's that's a very interesting thing. Now, now what what's striking also, and I'll just, before I go further into it, I want to just uh, introduce... Uh, another way of understanding the Ten Commandments, and then we'll get further into this. This will sort of shine another light on it as we discuss it. You know that when you have the Ten Commandments, you have five on one side and five on the other side. And we know the first five relate to a person's relationship with God. And the second five are person-to-person mitzvahs. Okay? Now, one of the ways that the sages tell us to understand the depths of what's going on in terms of these Ten Commandments, is to read them across. Meaning to say that the first one, the first set of five, the first of the first set of five, is going to correlate with the first of the second set of five. In other words, one with six, two with seven, three with eight, four with nine, five with ten. That there are very illuminating correspondences when you when you understand them in that way. Okay, very good. So, What is the commandment not to believe in other gods? God calls himself a jealous God. So that's the second commandment. So that correlates with the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Oh, well, that's making this very personal, isn't it? You know, so what's what is that dynamic? Now you understand that this idea of jealousy in a way, exclusivity exclusivity is really being brought about in a very visceral way. So, and let me make it even stronger. There's something that I I saw in this book, the the Ten Commandments book, the Klein edition that I mentioned. Um, You see, there's a whole, there's a whole interesting dialogue uh, among the sages and the Rishonim and all the great rabbis in terms of understanding exactly um, how we heard God speak at, at Mount Sinai. So everyone agrees that, that we heard God speak. And not only did we hear God speak, but we also heard God speak. We heard God speak directly, each one of us, and we all heard the same thing. And we all heard God speaking directly to Moshe as well. So that, that solidified our belief in, 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 in Moshe's relationship with God. Because not only did we hear God directly, like Moshe heard God directly, but we also heard God speaking directly to Moshe, to Moses. So this is, but in terms of the actual details of, did we hear the first two commandments? Did we hear all ten commandments? Did, did, what, what exactly did we hear? Okay. Now, now, one of the arguments that goes back and forth in terms of just actually getting the details straight is something very interesting in terms of the way God says these Ten Commandments. The first two are said in the first person. The next eight are said in the third person. So that's an argument for the, the directness of the first two, right? Because the opinion that God said the first two and, you know, the... the, the The Medrash says that what happened was God spoke and all of our souls flew out of our bodies and God literally had to resurrect millions of people and then we got our souls back and then God spoke again and our souls flew out of our bodies again and God had to resuscitate the dead and millions of people all stood up again and then we said, you know what, Moshe, get the other eight. (laughs) You know, we got God's two pieces of ID. We're good. We're good. You know, so, so, so the, that's the argument, one of the arguments that's given that, that the first person, but let's, let's change this because God says, I am your God, that's first person, and don't have any other gods before me, that's also first person, okay, okay. So, again, when we're talking about this idea of not having any other gods or, rec- or be- even believing that any other powers exist, and certainly nothing stands in the way of God's will when he wants to do something because there's no other powers. In fact, the Lubavitcher Rebbe gives a, an amazing explanation of something. That one of our traditions is that when God spoke at Mount Sinai, there was no echo. No echo was heard. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe explains it in the following way. Brilliant, brilliant analysis. What is the physics of an echo? When you speak, the sound waves travel from your mouth, and they bounce off a wall, and that's what creates an echo. But when God says there's no one other than me, the entire universe is filled with godliness. There is no otherness in the world, so there's nothing to bounce off of. Because there's nothing other than God. So that's why there was no echo. Because there is only God. That's the only thing that exists. So, so the idea that God is saying it directly, don't have any other gods other than me. I'm a jealous God. And that correlates with don't commit adultery. Right? That's making it all very personal. So that adds to the idea that, that this is one of the commandments that said directly to us in the first person. Okay. So, so let's go further with this. When we make the golden calf, when we made the golden calf, 40 days after the Torah was given, because it was sort of the Anyway, lots of, don't get into the whole golden calf thing, but I gave a talk on it recently. It's called The Final Test on Torah on iTunes.com if you want to know more about the golden cap. Okay. Um, but it was, it was an idol of sorts, meaning to say we didn't think that it was God, but nonetheless we, we desired a go-between between us and God because we thought Moshe died. So, so that's, that's kind of what it was. But, but it still was under the category of, of, of an idol, even though we didn't think it was God. Okay. So what does Moses do? Something very illuminating, very, very illuminating. Now, there's something called um, the uh, a sota, and what we call the Sota, the waters of the Sota. And this is getting into the whole idea of adultery right, which is the, remember, the seventh commandment, which is parallel to the second commandment, which is not to commit idol worship. So I, I want to just illuminate the, the idea of how personal our relationship with God is and how Moshe viewed the relationship between us and God in such a personal intimate way. Um, so what is a sota? A sota is a, a, a suspected adulteress. And so if a Woman, a married woman secludes herself with a man and the man finds her and she's, she's warned, don't do this again. And then a second time he finds her secluded with this same man. Then he has reason to suspect that she has been up to wrongdoing. Okay? Or another crucial way of understanding this is that the woman may have made a mistake and have put herself in a compromising position again, might be 100% innocent, and would have no way, because everyone would admit that it's a compromised situation, Um, she would have no way to prove that she didn't do anything wrong. And so the Torah is giving her an opportunity to prove her innocence. So that's another important perspective. It's not a witch hunt. It's a way of bringing shalom between husband and wife, peace between husband and wife. So so what happens? A parchment is written with the name of God on it, and that parchment is dissolved in some water. And, and one of the um, homiletical interpretations that the sages give is that since the purpose of this is to bring peace between husband and wife, that so great is peace between husband and wife that you see that God will even allow his name to be erased since it's dissolving in this water, right? So the woman drinks it, and if she's innocent, she receives tremendous, tremendous blessings and beautiful, healthy children and all sorts of wonderful things. And if not, well, the... Punishment for adultery is a capital offence, and so she dies. So so this is the waters of the sota, this is the mesota. Okay? Now, by the way, it's important to know that if the man committed adultery in other words, if the man were was not an upstanding servant of God, the mesota didn't work. So in other words, he had to be on a higher spiritual level to be even eligible to administer this type of test. And that's that's a very interesting thing, because in general, you should know in terms of the physics of spirituality, if you will, that if you criticize someone else and you're guilty of that same wrongdoing, your criticism won't take hold in the other person. That's what the sages teach. In other words, it just it doesn't have the doesn't have the, the the firepower, so to speak, to land, to resonate with the other person, because it's not coming from a place of you're actually being upstanding in that in that place. So so um so anyway, okay. So why am I why am I telling you about the Soto? So the reason is is because of the following. When the Jews did this act of making the golden calf. The first thing Moshe did, and what I think is so amazing about this, is that you don't see that God instructed him to do this. This was just like, just what he did. So it must have seemed obvious to him that this is what you're supposed to do. The first thing that he did was, he destroyed the golden calf, ground it into ashes, dissolved it in water, and made all the people drink. Of this solution. Do you you see how this is an enactment of that if we go to other gods, we're committing an act of adultery? Do you see this? And this is the first thing that Moshe did on his own. You don't see that he was instructed by God to do this. So look at what our relationship with God is. Look how direct it is. It's one of the things in the first person. And God says, look, it's only me. It's only me. And now with this in mind, let's look at the word idol worship also. In Hebrew, it's "avoda zara, which means strange worship. And what I think is interesting is if you look at that phrase from God's point of view, God's looking at the person doing it and saying, That's strange. Why are you doing that? That doesn't exist. It's only me. Why are you going there? That's strange worship. Because you would think that idol worship, the exact translation would be, you know, horribleness incarnate, or something like that, some sort of judgmental thing. But God's just sort of, so to speak, scratching his head, going, why are you doing that? Why are you looking there? So, so, one of the things that, that, that leads to, to idol worship, which leads to thinking that there are other powers in the world, is that we're making God small all the time. We're trying, and that's why it says, don't make an image of God. Because once you make an image of God, you're making God small. Don't make a mold of God. Because when you, you know, what a mold is, it it, it can pack something. It compresses it. Don't do that. Don't do that. You're making God small. And how often in our life do we make God small? And I want to give you an example. And... um. And it's maybe a surprising example. Because you, you wouldn't imagine that, 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 that Moshe, that Moses himself would be, would be the, 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 the subject of, 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 this, uh, account. And this is in Parshus And it's, if you want to see it, it's, um, chapter 11. This is in, uh, Bab Midbar, uh, Numbers. Chapter 11, uh, verse 23. And it's a it's one of these amazing uh, things that happened to us in the desert. But um, just a just a tiny bit of space is 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 spent on it, which was that at a certain point, the Jews really desired meat in the desert. And that's a, a very uh, huge subject in itself. Like, why did they want meat? There was a lot going on there, especially since the manna was falling from heaven. So you had you had that going on, so it's a little bit hard to understand why why they wanted me. But you know, I heard Reb Schloma say that that the hardest thing in the world is to have your head in the clouds while your feet are on the ground. To maintain that balance. That's 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 the model that that we should all strive for. That your head is in the clouds while your feet is are firmly planted on the ground. That's the type of um balance that, that, that we need and there's, there's a lot to say on that subject um, I, I'll just tell you one, one quick thing on that because it's, 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 it's really the paradigm of Judaism itself um, in terms of healthy spirituality and and I'm, I'm compelled by this, I heard it from Rabbi Friend in the name of a Rishon I'm, I'm not sure, I think it's the Rashbam the Rashba, I'm not, I'm not positive, but but in terms of the test of Abraham, virtually everyone says the 10th test of Abraham was the Akedah, was the binding of Yitzhak. Again, another huge test in itself. Let me just say, God never asked him to kill Isaac. God didn't change his mind and say, oh, okay, well, since, uh, okay, you don't have to. God never asked him to kill Isaac. The nature of the test was that Abraham thought that God asked him to kill Isaac. So that's just important to understand. But it's a it's a big subject. Anyway, so everyone says that's the, t- the tenth test. Would Abraham just go beyond, 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 you know, even amidst what he perceived to be contradictions to just serve God. Um, but there is one Rishon who says, you know what, that was the ninth test. The tenth test was actually the next account given about the life of Abraham in the Torah in the beginning of Parshas Chayisar, which is when he purchases the cave to bury Sarah in. And that is in the cave, Mor Samach the cave of the patriarchs, so you can visit it. It's in Hebron, Hebron. And uh, the Zohar says that that's the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Very fascinating ideas attached to it. If it, there's a um, uh, anyway, the, the <laughs> just want to stay on course here. Uh, these are big subjects, but I'm just I'm just trying to I'm just trying to zero in on how could that be the tenth test? Because basically, Abraham had to negotiate with this person named Ephron, who is basically just a shady real estate dealer. <laughs> And, and he's, he begins the negotiation by saying, you are a prince, you are a prince among people. And Abraham was, he, he, kings would consult with him and everything like that. Abraham was a big man in his day. He was, you know, a worldwide known person. Um, and by the way, something interesting about Abraham, at that time in history, different people, different communities, since, you know, wasn't as organized as is today, they minted their own currency. And the most reliable currency in the world was that minted by Abraham. So, so he was really trusted and beloved by everyone, by all the peoples, you know? So Afran says to him, you, you know, um, you, you are such a distinguished, amazing person. Take it for free. And then at the end, he ends up charging him the most exorbitant price. <laughs> In the entire world. Like, to this day, when you calculate what Abraham paid for that piece of land, it's astronomical what Abraham paid. Okay? So, so, but still, you would say, how does this even compare? How does this even compare to the finding of Isaac? Right? This miracle baby that's born when he's 100 years old and Sarah's 90 years old and is older. the whole continuation of Judaism is based on Isaac. Like, how do you compare the two things? And so, the following explanation is, is given, which is that the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, was this moment of tremendous transcendence. But that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to be able to take your lofty spiritual level, come back down into the world, and still be able to deal with difficult people. Even people who want to rip you off. Right? That that's the tenth test. That's the goal. That's the Jewish model. Right it's not just like I'm so high I don't even know you exist anymore like that's not it <laughs> it's to come back down with that same with that same expanded consciousness and to be able to work within the world of limitations that's the that's the idea okay so so getting back to this idea that that the Jews wanted meat in the desert right so, th- that's the idea that they're looking to be grounded. That's what I heard Reb Shlomo say. That they, that they you know, the, the manna was like angel food, basically. It was like, it was condensed light. That's what it says, Rabbi Kivan Gomorrah Yuma. Okay? It was condensed light. That's what manna was. But, and it was just elevating them, you know, purifying them. And they wanted to be grounded, because that's what the Torah demands. That's one way of understanding it. Okay? But nonetheless, this request for the Jewish people to have meat was just blew out Moshe Rabbeinu's brains, basically. It's just like, he basically said, God, just kill me. He says it. You can look. You can look. He says, God, just kill me. You know, because, and I'm going to read to you, this is now verse 21, Moses said, 600,000 foot soldiers, so he's talking about the men right now between a certain age group, which we understand to be, if you include women and children, about two and a half million people. Okay, that's what we understand more or less to be the number of people who heard God speak directly at Mount Sinai. 600,000 foot soldiers are the people in whose midst I am. Yet you say I shall give them meat, and they shall eat for a month of days. So now just think from, just like you're you're a caterer, okay? And you've got two and a half million people who want meat for a month. (laughs) And you're in the middle of the desert. There's not a lot of food. So much so that God himself is raining down food from heaven. I mean, that's the lack of availability of food in the area. So now we're talking about We're talking about meat for all of these people for 30 days. Alright? Now, Moshe goes further. Can sheep and cattle be slaughtered for them and suffice for them? And now listen to this. Moshe goes even further. Or if all of the fish of the sea will be gathered for them, would it suffice for them? Meaning, this is the magnitude of the catering situation. If you caught every fish in the entire sea, it still wouldn't be enough. That was Moshe's understanding. So, 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 what's the answer? The answer is what you would say, well, nothing's hard for God, right? That's the answer. And that's what God says back to him. God says, Hashem said to Moshe, this is verse 23 now, is the hand of Hashem limited? And now he says, now you will see whether my word comes to pass or not. And then God performs this miracle. The winds blow in, and it's just quail, and just piles of quail, and more and more quail, and more and more and more and more, and, no. more, and, more, and more and more and more, and giant piles of quail, just, just, just blowing in. And they had it. And they had it. Alright? So, So I want to look into this word. Is the hand of God limited? So what did we say? Just so we're staying with the subject, okay? We're talking about this notion of God saying, don't have any idols before me. That no other power exists. That I have a direct relationship with you. And that's an intimate relationship. Because it's correlating just so that you can kind of like Wrap your mind around it like an exclusive relationship, like husband and wife type relationship. That exclusivity is what God has with each one of us. Right? And don't, don't look to other places, because if you do, it's just strange, because there's nothing there. So, so we fall into this trap of limiting God, of making God small in our minds, and so that's why we think that is God really capable of doing this and that and everything? Is He is he really running the entire world? I mean, really, the entire, entire world? He's really doing all of that? Yes. And to the extent that we say no, we're limiting Him. We're making Him small. Now, now, I saw this yesterday, and it, it kind of made me happy. Now, look, this word, tikkatser, tiktsar, rather, tiktsar, okay, that means limiting. That's the word that God uses about himself. Tiktsar. Tuf, kuf, tsari, ri. That means limiting, right? God says, you're limiting me. Now, if you want to read that as a verb, right, God is using it as a noun. You're, you're, is my hand limited? That's a, that's a nap. But if you want to just key in on that word and read it as a verb, it means to cut down, to cut short, to make small. Bless him. To make small. So God is operating, when he uses that word, it's operating on a number of different levels, I'd like to suggest. Which is that, Moshe, you are limiting your own imagination. You are cutting off, cutting down, making small your own imagination. And as such you're now projecting your own lack of understanding, your own limitedness onto me and making me seem limited. If you want to take it a step further, this verb form, starting with the letter tough, is a feminine verb. Makes it and and this quality that we have, men and women. Women are stronger in this particular quality. It's called bina. This understanding that that the bina, so to speak, of Moshe Rabbeinu, if you want to understand it in the with the taf as a this feminine verb, that this quality of bina is being limited in terms of Moshe's perception. So, so we can't. We can't make God small. Now, I mentioned to you that if you're nicer, you will be smarter. And now, I want to deepen our conversation and in, in going into this aspect of it. Most people think that there's a direct correspondence between my level of intelligence, each of our level of intelligence, and our ability to understand the text. A smart person will understand it well. A very smart person will understand it very well. A genius will understand it extremely well. Someone who's not gifted in intelligence will not quite understand it. And this is the scale, the spectrum, that that most of us think exists in terms of a relationship with the Torah. It's not true. It's not true. One cannot, and I learned this from Rabbi Green, and I'm going to show you an example of it. One cannot understand the Torah unless they've rectified their midos, Unless you've fixed your personality. Unless you've fixed your character flaws. You cannot understand what the Torah is saying. And so, you can have someone who's a genius, but who's a messed up person. Who's, say, a jealous person right? And they'll project their own jealousy onto the text. They'll project their own anger. Let's say they're an angry person. I'm a genius, and no one recognizes my genius. They're walking around. They have an IQ, which is, you know, legitimately genius level. But they're angry. No one is appreciating me sufficiently. So when they read the text, they'll project their own anger onto the text and that's what they'll understand. Like, to give you an example, without going into details, Pinchas. Pinchas, who is the real Kana, the real zealot, right? Using that same word. They'll say, oh yeah, he's angry like I'm angry. He is holier than me. But he's, he's an angry guy like I'm an angry guy. They'll have no concept of who Pinchas was. They'll have no concept of who Pinchas was. Pinchas, you know, was on the short list To succeed Moshe Rabbeinu. Right? One of the few people who was seriously considered. Who's going to be next? Pindichus was enormous. But he was a man of action. Anyway, without going into it. So. So. If you understand. if, If you are coming from a place of wholeness. And you understand that the goodness of God. And you understand that, that God is helping us at every moment. Even if sometimes that helps, sometimes, listen, sometimes we give a, a person a vaccine. And that vaccine, like especially a child, like even, you know, you know, if, if, if you've ever brought a child to get a, a shot, it's not just the moment of the shot that's, that's traumatic. The idea that they're getting a shot is completely traumatic. And, um, I mean, I remember when I I would get shots, I would literally run around the doctor's office and they'd have to pin me to the wall. I'm I'm serious. You know, it it was terrifying, right? But what is that shot doing? That shot is preventing disease. So the, 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 the person often experiences fixings. That's why I don't like the word punishment, because I don't think... I think that's a, it's a very negative word and we and I'm not saying that we don't experience it as punishment but there's something beyond it there're fixings these are all fixings whatever it is and obviously we want our fixings to come in a beautiful way you know not in a negative way but you know the visual i always come up on is that if a person were to walk into the middle of a thorn bush to get them out of the middle of a thorn bush, you've got to pull them through the thorns. How else are you going to get them out of the thorn bush? So while they're being pulled through the thorns, they're saying, What are you doing to me? I'll tell you what I'm doing to you. I'm getting you out of the thorn bush that you walked into. That's what I'm doing. So So anyway, we have to correct our personalities, when we understand the goodness of God and everything like that, then we actually can understand what the text is saying. Now, I want to give you an example of this. Okay? This happened to me uh, this Friday night, so a couple of, a couple of days ago. And uh, it, was, it was a really interesting experience for me. So I was walking with two people, and they were talking Torah. Okay? Actually, I was with my son as well. Uh, no, with a friend as well. But anyway, the three of us were talking. And um, and one one says to the other, um, Tell me tell me something good, right? And the other person says, Well, you know, I'm working through this question in the Torah. And he, he says like this We in the beginning of Bhaloscha, this week's parsha that we just read, Aaron, the high priest, Aaron Hakoin, Moses' brother, right? So Aaron is um, lighting the menorah. And so the rabbis ask, what is the connection between lighting the menorah in the Holy Temple in the beginning of the, this week's Parsha, and the fact that we just finished reading in last week's Parsha about the, head of all the, the heads of all the tribes bringing, bringing presents for the Mishkan. Right? And they say that, and, but Aaron was not included in that group. So they say, Aaron felt bad. And God wanted to reassure Aaron and said, Aaron, look, you get to light the menorah. Okay? So, so this person was wondering, why was he reassured in this way? Uh, Aaron, you get to light the menorah, which is something that they don't get to do. Why not say, you are the one who walks into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur and utters the name of God. You're the only person who, who does that right? Like that seemingly is a bigger reassurance and a bigger sort of like, whatever, pat on the back, if you will, than lighting the menorah. Okay. So, so this, was, this was the question. Now, here's the reason why I'm bringing it up. The other person who was listening, right, said, well, let's try to figure out why Aaron was feeling bad. Okay? And he said surely he wasn't jealous. And it was like, yeah, okay, wait a second, why was he feeling bad? He's too refined and he's too great that they all get to bring inauguration gifts to the Holy Temple and I don't I'm jealous of them. That can't be what what Aaron was experiencing. So he said, it must be that Aaron felt bad because they got an opportunity to serve God. And here he just, all he wants to do is serve God. And so he didn't have this opportunity to serve God. And God recognized in his heart, not that he was jealous, but that he wants to serve me. So God reassures him and says, look, you get to do this service. And the Ramban goes on to say that the lighting of the menorah is something that we still do to this day on Hanukkah. So this is something that, while their things stopped, while we don't have a temple, the lighting of the menorah has never stopped, so it's the greatest thing, because it's just endless service that you and your children are going to be able to do. Okay, but let's go back for a moment. The person who brought up this point when we were talking, he's not a jealous person. Because if he was a jealous person, he wouldn't have said, Well, clearly Aaron isn't jealous. (laughs) So what is, so what's really going on with Aaron? And because this person understands that we're all vessels for God's light, and the highest thing that we can aspire to is to serve God, he then said, well, Aaron just wants to serve God. And now that opened it up for the answer of what's going on. So you see, because he had his, this meta, this quality of jealousy fixed in himself, he was able to understand what's going on in the text. So you see how if you rectify your personality, you see a jealous person will never understand that, because they'll go, yeah, of course, why was he excluded? Meaning, how come I always get excluded when I wanna, when I want this and I want that? They wouldn't even have can have insight into their own process in order to have open eyes to actually see what the Torah is saying. Now there are endless, endless examples of this. But this one just happened. So when Okay. So we can't limit ourselves either. So if we're trying to understand how 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 God isn't limited, we can't limit ourselves either. You know, one of the beautiful things that I heard Rabbi Shlomo say in terms of understanding um, Noah, right? Noah, was it says that, it says, the, the, the rabbis say that Noah was small in belief. So it's hard to understand, like, Noah was the most righteous person in the world, literally, at that point. The single most righteous person in the world. What do you mean he was small in belief? Right And there's an opinion that he was greater than Abraham. So, what do you mean he's small in belief? So listen to what Rav Shlomo says. He believed in God, but he didn't believe that God believed in him. He believed in God, but he didn't believe that God believed in him. So when we don't believe that God believes in us... That's one of the primary gateways for cutting ourselves down and for limiting ourselves. And then once we become limited, we superimpose that aspect of limitation onto God, and then we start to believe in other powers. So so I want to add one more thing. Just for all of us, you know if you're listening to this talk at all, especially at this point in the talk <laughs> it's only because you love God, <laughs> and if you love god then then you got to know this story okay <laughs> so 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 i I experienced. Well, I was there, I guess, more or less, when it happened. Um, a miracle. And I want to share it with you because it's. Uh, there's a great bit of instruction that goes with this. Because I think all of us are trying to make a, a breakthrough. Or we should all be trying to make breakthroughs our entire life. As long as we're alive in this world, we should try to make breakthroughs to the next level. Okay? So how do you do it? How do you do it? So, 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 breaking out of this sense of limitation, putting ourselves in that direct relationship with the only power, with God, with God, the the, the only one, the one, the only one. By the way, I saw something very interesting, which is, it's in the Balatorem in Baloscha, when it's talking about the seventy elders. Okay. Um, it, the Balatorum goes through 70 names of God Okay, remember we're just talking about there's only one God but the way God manifests himself in terms of how he deals with us now we say well that was an act of that God is dealing with us it, it, through the meat of chesed meaning kindness or God is is striking down that that thing or, you know, that, that would be Elohim, that's the Amida of Din of judgment. So it's only God, because God is the only power. But we want to describe the, 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 the levels of interaction. Like, for instance, the example that I heard, which I, I love so much, my, my 11-year-old's friend calls me Mr. Sax, right? My wife will call me sweetheart, right? My other child will call me daddy, Right? So hopefully I'll have grandchildren. They'll call me grandpa or something. So they're only talking about me. But how I manifest myself in that moment is how they'll describe. So one of these names that the Bala brings about God is Echad. That Echad, which means one, is not just a description of God, but that's actually one of his names. You know? So bless you. So that's a It's an interesting thing, and I'll give you a. Well, anyway, let's keep on going. If you want to hear more about the word echad, there's a a talk about uh, the gematria of large letters in the Torah. And that's on Torah and iTunes also. I talk about echad because there's a large dalit, and it's interesting to go into what that means. But anyway, let me tell you this miracle story. We were here in this this shul, actually, it was. uh, upstairs in the other building and uh, it was uh, the night of Slichos, which is a prayer service at midnight at Chatzot before Rosh Hashanah, so it's around a week before Rosh Hashanah, the new year when the prayers are really kicking into high gear and um, we knew that we were going to be in another spot, a larger place for Rosh Hashanah and um, a couple of people were talking, I think it was Dewey Wax and Johnny Boyer, maybe it was Doug Schiller I think was there not sure exactly. And I was there, but anyway. So so they're talking, and one says to the other, you know, when we go to this new place, you know, to, for Rosh Hashanah, which is the Karate Academy where we are now, um, we're going to need uh, an ark to hold the Torah. It's called an Aron HaKodesh. Right? An ark, right? So um, the next moment, someone walks in, and this is now Around midnight on a Saturday night, right, this upstairs in this more or less empty building, someone walks in and says, um, "Do you guys need an ark to hold the Torah? Because um, there, I just found out there's an extra one. The, the Schwartzes, Olivia and Shlomo Schwartz, had an extra Rabbi Schwartz. A miracle, a miracle. But that's not the end of the story. And I'll tell you something." If it was just that, I probably wouldn't even tell you the story. It's because of this next part of this story, which is truly enlightening. Okay? And this has great practical applications for our life. This next part. Okay? So, it's the moments before Rosh Hashanah. We got the Ark. There it is. We positioned it. We made a whole setup of a shul in this new space and everything like that. People were already like starting to uh, sing, like to just kind of create a mood and everything like that. And, you know, Rosh Hashanah is a very big deal. It's like the whole year is coming down at that moment. So it's, we take it very, 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 very seriously. And so, you know, there's like a reverential atmosphere. And then, I think it was me, I open up the doors of the ark because we have to put the Torah in and there are shelves in the middle that don't pull out, <laughs> meaning you can't put the Torah in this ark. <laughs> and this is our ark. This is what we got. It's about 10 minutes before Rosh Hashanah is about to start. And it's not like, well, you just unscrew it or you slip it out. No, these it's part of the thing, these shelves. So it's sort of like, can you picture it? Can you picture it? You can't. You literally can't put the Torah in the ark. So we have some some custodians who are kind of helping setting up and everything like that. And this thing is pretty heavy. We got to pull it out and they've got a hammer and they, they're hacking this thing. They're banging, banging. They have to they have to remove the barriers. For the Torah to go in. <laughs> they have to, I mean, you can't, right? I mean, you, what's more metaphorical than this, right? But it's the actual thing. You have to knock out the barriers so the Torah can go in. And so people are sort of like singing and there's a very spiritual vibe. And outside you hear bang, 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 bang. And, you know, there's only a few minutes left. And so there's like this fevered banging going on trying to get these barriers out of the way. And they got them out of the way, and they put it in, and the Torah was able to fit in, and everything went off in the proper time. But here's what I learned from them, which was, even in the presence of an open miracle, human effort is still required. Even in the presence of an open miracle, human effort is still required. And now let's make this even more personal. Look at your own lives. All of us want things. All of us do. Okay, It's part of our humanity. Okay, And there's nothing wrong with it. It's good to desire. We have to desire. That's where growth comes from, de- from desire. Look at the areas in your life and and, and ask yourself, am I putting the proper effort necessary in that particular area of my life? Now, a lot of people, and I think a lot of religious people, make this mistake. I know I do. Which is, I say to myself, I'm praying. I'm praying all the time. I'm doing mitzvahs. Isn't that enough? What we call, this word is hishtadlis, meaning effort, directed effort. Proactivity. Isn't that doesn't that count as histadless? And what I'm saying is no. That aids htablis. That is the complement. That's the that gives it turbo power. But you need the you need the proactive thing itself. Okay? So ask yourself that area in my life, am I putting in the direct effort in that particular thing? And if I am, is it enough? Do I need to put more effort in that particular area? Okay. And now I'll just really close with this one thing. I mentioned it once, but I've been reminded of it again, and it speaks to me, so I'll share. You know, I'm a writer, um, and uh, so Imagine I'm, gonna, imagine I'm on a TV show and, uh, and someone, an actor comes up to me and says, I want you to make an episode for me, write an episode for me, uh, about all, around, all about how I'm a juggler. Come up with a whole story and I'll be juggling and everything like this, and um, that will be the episode. So the first question that I would ask that person and I think this would go for every producer, the first question you're going to ask is, do you know how to juggle? <laughs> and if the answer is no, I'm not writing the episode. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> but if you say to me, yeah, I know how to juggle, or I'm, I'm not great at it necessarily, but I've been really working hard at it, you know, and, and I, I can get there, I just need a little bit more work and I can get there, then I would say, you know what? Great, we'll do the episode, and you know what I'm going to get you a coach to just bring up your skills to the the final level that you need, and then we're we're good to go so now let's apply that to ourselves. These things that we're asking for in our own lives are we asking for episodes about juggling, but we don't even haven't even taken the steps to juggle yet? You know I was thinking, and this it might sound sort of bizarre, but I'm not going to be the President of the United States. Not, not that I desire to be. But, but think about what goes into being the President of the United States. You have to have had some sort of, for the most part, some sort of government job, and you have to have excelled at that, and you have to raise money, and you have to have a campaign, and you have to make commercials, and you have to go through states, and you have to get yourself on the ballot... And tirelessly flying all across the country. And do you know how much goes into becoming president of the United States? Can you imagine someone who's just an accountant or whatever their job is? They work in a school, whatever it is. And they're praying to God, God, please make me president of the United States. It's not going to happen. It is not going to happen. I don't care how religious they are. Now, can God do anything? God can do absolutely anything, you know? So but at the same time though, using this juggling, you know, paradigm, the person hasn't put themselves into what we'd say the, the matziv, the the, the the situation to, to, to enable themselves for that. So so that's a question that we need to ask ourselves, which is that particular area that I desire to make a breakthrough in. Am I putting in direct effort or enough effort in that particular area? And that will give us chen. That will give us grace in the eyes of God if we are. And then that combined with all the wonderful things that we're doing and all the prayers that we're saying will really be effective in terms of seeing the, the accomplishment that we're looking for. Shem should bless us that just that we should really know that we're in that direct personal relationship and that there's nothing else We're not even allowed to believe that anything else exists. And God should bless us all.